This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 201 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. In this show, Jason's talking to Scott Young, author of Learn More, Study Less, about his attempt to learn the entire MIT computer science curriculum in 12 months. So Scott, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you because I am uh, fascinated with uh, what you call the MIT challenge, which is to learn the entire four-year MIT curriculum uh, of computer science or within like a year or something? Is that what you're doing? Yeah. So basically the idea is, uh, is it possible to sort of get the knowledge of an MIT education without going to MIT? And, and one of the sort of added constraints of that is I'm trying to do it in a faster amount of time to kind of showcase, you know, maybe what, what you can do with learning and education if you sort of change some of the assumptions and change some of the, the ground rules for it. You know how this this whole idea has got has sort of been catching fire, I think this past year because of Udacity and all the all the publicity it's received, and Coursera and now edX, and it seems like there's there's sort of this uh, dialogue going on uh, also in the public about what to do about education because it's becoming so incredibly expensive to the, to the point where people are going to have to spend like you know a quarter million dollars to send their kid to school or something, and uh, so. It, I'm fascinated with the fact that you're actually doing this on your own. And I guess the first thing I'd like to start with is ask is like, how did you come up with the idea in the first place? Well, uh, the, the original idea was not uh, this sort of major publicity thing. It was just, I was interested in learning computer science. I had thought about, you know, I might like to go back and study computer science, but it just, it didn't appeal to me doing another four year degree. It didn't appeal me to go back to school and, you know, take another four years of my life and spend a bunch of money for a college degree that I may or may not use. And so the idea occurred to me that if there's so many courses that are being now just delivered online through this open courseware platform. So I chose MIT, but Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, these open courseware platforms where you can access their courses for free. Uh, would it be possible just to learn it through that and, and you know, actually substantiate that by trying to pass the exams and do the projects that the MIT students would do. Now, did, did you think of maybe just doing one course to see how that would work out before embarking on the whole thing? Because I did. I did. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, I had done a few sort of courses casually, and I mean casually in that uh, I would watch the lecture videos uh, and maybe if there was some little programming thing they told you to do, I would do them. But I hadn't done them in sort of a rigorous way where I'm actually going to write an exam and under exam time constraints and exam conditions and then sort of grade it with the official solutions. I hadn't done that before, um, but I, I had done a few of these classes before, so I sort of had an idea what it was going to be. And then before I sort of embarked on this challenge, I did a more rigorous sort of pilot test with one of the intro physics courses to see, well, is this something that actually a person can do? And and since then, I just found that it's actually a lot easier than most people would think it is. And it's not, you know, it sounds like it's an incredibly difficult, arduous thing, but the material is just really good. And and for some courses, it's better than classes I actually took in university. Yeah. And what, what, the first course, was that an MIT 
physics yes, course? Yes, it was uh, MIT's uh, Intro to Physics. And it had uh, homework assignments and quizzes and, and everything along with the videos? Mm-hmm, yeah, and it, some of the intro courses, particularly for the classes that are freshmen or they have a lot of students attending, they have tons of material, not just from the year that it was taught, but from years in the past. So you have way more material than you could ever possibly even use to test yourself and to practice and to uh, really understand the ideas. Well, see, one of the key things for like uh, learning on your own, I think, is is the ability to check your answers and, and, and understand when you got something wrong or not. I mean, a lot of times you get... Uh, you know, a book on, you know, a technical subject and you'll go through it and I'm like, here are the questions at the end. And there's, and there's usually, sometimes there are answers and sometimes there aren't. And, and it rarely are there actually worked out solutions. So you can figure out like, okay, I got this wrong. Now, why is it wrong? How should I have done this? I mean, were there comprehensive materials in that regard that you could go through and, and really work through and, 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 and check and, and understand? Yeah. Your- Got wrong. Well, that's one of the real strengths of at least MIT's open courseware platform is that a lot of the classes have lecture videos, which is what people have tended to focus on because they sort of make that as the big deal for learning is that, well, did the professors delivering these hour long talks teach a lot? And I've just found that the lecture videos aren't that important for learning because if you're learning a technical topic like calculus or math or a programming class, then yeah, it's nice to watch a lecture. But what really matters is some way of testing yourself, some way of figuring out, am I doing this right? And some way of checking that. And so the nice thing is that MIT's open course are more so than they even have lecture videos. They have lots of uh, questions with solution keys and these solution keys explain, oh, this is how you get the answer. And so I found that that process has been even more important in actually learning the ideas. And so if you want to learn about artificial intelligence or encryption or the internet or networking systems, then having some guy explain it to you in a video is nice, but there's lots of videos on the internet that can do that. What's really useful, and I think the real advantage of these kind of systems, is that you can do some questions that require you to really think, and if you can't figure it out, it'll tell you, okay, this is how you're supposed to think about it to get the answer. And that's been a a major part of this MIT challenge for me. Yeah, I mean, I I think of learning... You know, you, you, you have this sort of type of learning where you become familiar with a topic because you read an, a newspaper article on it or a magazine article or something, and you're like, oh, I've heard of that, or I, I'm generally aware of that concept. But then there's this thing of this idea of incorporating it to like a functional knowledge, which is like almost like a sport. It's like you can't, you can't learn how to, you know, shoot free throws in basketball by watching somebody do it. You actually need to go through the process. And, and, uh, and I, I agree. I mean, I, from my experience anyway, I think you're right. It's the, it's the, it's the actual doing the work and, 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 and really, really trying. So, but, you know, one other thing is the idea that, you know, sometimes you, you can see the solution, but you still don't get it. I mean, what do you do when you get stuck? I mean, have, do, you have a, do you ever use tutors or, I mean, what happens when it's like you, you, get, you get to that point where it's like, I, I see the solution, I still, I don't get it. Well, I think the first part is having some diligence about it as well, because Although sometimes I'll see the solution, I won't get how they understood it. There are a lot of processes you can do using the material to sort of go through, okay, what is it I don't understand? Maybe I need to reread this section or maybe I need to focus on this particular concept or idea. Maybe I need to go to a different source. So often the internet, if I don't understand an idea from the way it was taught in the lecture notes or in uh, the textbook, then I go on the internet and I search for other resources because maybe other explanations will do it. And this sort of 
comprehensive searching is unfamiliar for a lot of students who are used to just being told this is how something works and this is how you're supposed to think about it. And if they don't get it, then, well, then they just don't get it. Uh, and, and so this sort of approach, I think, is very common with people who are used to teaching themselves, let's say, professional skills. So if you're a software engineer and you don't understand how to use a particular piece of software, you quickly become very good at using Google and figuring it out and checking lots of forums and say, okay, how does this work? And, and trying different resources. And this sort of ability to teach yourselves things is a, something that is partially related to intelligence, but I think it's also a skill on its own and something that we tend not to teach in schools and something that I've been trying to use a lot. And of course, there has been situations where I just don't get an idea and I don't understand it. And so that in those cases, it's helpful to have some friends who have studied the subject before who can maybe, uh, you know, give me a little bit of advice. But I would say the ability to self-educate is a skill. It's not merely just being intelligent. So uh, you haven't actually used any tutors um, professionally? Oh. You haven't, like, say, gone to, like, tutor spree and hired a tutor for a subject the ever? The only expense, uh, aside from just you know, pens and, and notebooks, uh, has been the textbooks for the course. So the entire cost of the program uh, has been a little under $2,000. So I haven't spent money on on anything else the entire time. So $2,000 worth of, of, of books, Text of, of textbooks. Yeah, a little bit less, but it, I rounded up to $2,000. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I mean, textbooks are very expensive, and to buy every textbook for an entire career, or entire uh, four-year curriculum for two thousand dollars seems like quite a deal. I mean, or did you just go and hunt down used? Well, used textbooks? that's the nice thing too, is that a lot of the um, MIT's open coursework classes are a little bit older, so they're maybe from you know two thousand four instead of two thousand twelve, and that means they're using the second edition of the textbook instead of the third edition. The second edition of the textbook, because it's out of date, costs ten dollars, where the third edition costs. $200. So that really saves a lot of money. And actually, MIT publishes a lot of their own sort of, I would call them textbooks. Sometimes they call them course notes, but they're really textbooks and they publish them for the classes for free. So you can get a 300 page set of course notes for one of the classes and it's completely free. It's just, you just get downloaded as a PDF. Now, how often do you have to go in, in outside of your textbooks to find other information? I mean, do you find it, it's like, standard that you're that you're going and looking through for lots of other resources or is it or are you, is it usually that if you the course notes in the book are enough for you well the course notes in the books are are quite well done normally like the nice thing is is that they're also teaching you in the way that they intend for you to use it whereas if you go on a wikipedia page there'll be lots of irrelevant details they'll be talking about you know this concept is related to this concept which you know maybe you don't need to know anything about for the particular exam or assignment in question so the textbook and course notes are very well done so i've been very happy with the quality of the material but at the same time uh, there's so much out there online that if you just know how to look for it if you ever get stuck or if you ever don't understand something chances are there's a hundred other people who have also explained it on the internet if you just spend a few minutes looking for it so whenever i do get stuck Wikipedia is always a really good starting point, but uh, Khan Academy, uh, Patrick JMT, there's there's lots of other websites that give you their video explanations or PDF courses, and even other uh, schools like Stanford and and uh, Yale and these kind of programs also offer their own explanations of things. So if you get stuck, then that's often the way to do it. Yeah, I've had that experience too, where I've 
I remember when I was in college and I was taking a course in abstract algebra and I was reading some explanation of a topic and I was just like, I had no idea what to talking about. And I went to the math library and got another book and I read it and like within like two minutes, I immediately got it. And I'm like, well, geez, you know, why did they explain it that way? But everyone's brain works a little differently and it's and sometimes just a different type of explanation from a different angle makes all the difference. Definitely. Definitely. Um, did did you ever try and recruit any partners in crime on this? Like, get a buddy of yours and say, "Hey, let's let's do this together," or anything? Or is, have you ever considered doing that? Or was this something you wanted to prove that you could do it on your own without any help or any resources that anyone else couldn't immediately access? Right. Well, I did. Def. I've definitely had mentors or uh, friends that sort of had helped me along the way. It's not been an entirely solo endeavor. I. Uh, a good friend of mine, Cal Newport, he did his PhD in computer science at MIT, and he's been sort of a, one of the good advisors on the project of telling me, yeah, this this is a good simplification to make. This is maybe a bad simplification to make. Another friend of mine, Khalid Azad, who runs a, a website teaching uh, sort of college-level math, uh, he's also been a great help because he's done a lot of the same classes I've done before. And so if I've been working through a hard problem, he's helped me. So I haven't, I don't feel that I've done this alone. And I've also had thousands of people following me. So it's, it definitely hasn't felt like a solo activity. But at the same time, uh, part of the reason I did this is because I wanted to sort of do it myself. And, and it doesn't really matter if other people are doing it as long with me. I'm doing it for myself. And so I don't need to twist someone's arm to sort of <laughs> on exactly the schedule I want to keep. Yeah, I mean, because that can sometimes be a real downer if you get someone involved and then they bail out at some some way through. And I always say that you know when people sometimes only want to start working out, so like, I'm going to get a workout partner. And I always say like, if you're going to do that, make sure they're like twice as motivated as you, because <laughs> last thing you want is be like, hey, we're doing our workout, and they're like, oh, you know, I can't, I got too much stuff to do. And then like they're they're start bailing out, and then that just sort of makes you not want to do it. And that's it's just, it's yeah, a sort of a dangerous bargain to make. The fact that I've been doing this publicly and I've been have thousands of people who are following the, the YouTube channel and, and even more that are following the blog as I've been updating this has meant that I definitely don't feel alone in this endeavor. I, I may, maybe I'm the only one doing this particularly right now, but I, I don't feel that this is just me working in a cave in isolation. I think that there's been a lot of feedback and I've actually changed a lot of how I was going to do the challenge based on getting that feedback. I originally decided it was going to be a little bit of a simpler goal, I was just going to do the only do the final exams. And then after interacting with people, a lot of people are saying, you know, you should also do the programming projects. And then I ended up adding that too. And people just making different suggestions or, or noticing what I'm doing has really, that's also guided the development of the challenge. So I've, I've been doing it, I would say with thousands of people, not just myself. How, how many people do you have reading your blog regularly or following along with the challenge? Well, right now, the blog has uh, over 20,000 subscribers, so that's sort of roughly where uh, the subscribership count is for the blog. And I, I don't know offhand the the traffic and other reader figures, but I know a lot of people are sort of reading it kind of casually. Every once in a while, I'll have a conversation with a friend of a friend of a friend, and and they'll say, oh, yeah, you're the guy doing the MIT thing. So so it, I'm, I'm happy that the sort of word is getting out that, you know, self-education and ability to teach yourself something is something that you can do. You don't have to go to university if you want to learn something. Right. Yeah. The, the one thing that I, I found uh, interesting is, uh, is an idea that I think Derek Sivers, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He, yeah, uh, he, yeah so I guess pretty much everybody is in yeah. the tech world. So he, he gave a talk, a TED talk about how when you tell people your goals, 
it actually reduces your motivation because there's some part of your brain that figures, well, I told people so I kind of got sort of a payoff there, right? So I got, as opposed to actually doing, whereas like if you keep it inside, you don't tell anybody, you, you have more motivation. I, I'm not sure I totally agree with that. I'm not sure that that comports with my my experience. And it seems to me that there's also this motivation, like this accountability. I've told people I'm going to do it. I want to do what I, to- what I said I was going to do. So I, uh, you know, there's that counterbalance. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Cause well, obviously think, you're telling everybody what you're going to do. I think Derek Sivers point remains generally true because often if you're telling someone, Hey, I'm really, I really want to do this. I really want to, you know, travel to Europe. I really want to start getting in shape or something like that. And you just talk about it in a very vague, nebulous way, which doesn't really make you accountable for anything. You can get your, give yourself a nice, good feeling for doing something, even you ha- though you haven't done anything at all. Whereas this was a very different case for me because it wasn't just that I was saying, hey, I'm going to learn a lot of stuff online for self-education, which wouldn't leave me accountable to anyone. I was incredibly specific about what I intended to accomplish and by what time and more than that, there were tons of people who said that I wouldn't be able to do it, who were kind of waiting <laughs> for me to fail. So that I had this many people kind of eagerly anticipating my failure it really motivated me to, to show them that they were wrong. That's awesome. You actually should have like a list of them. Like here are the 150 people who said I was going to fail. I have a special message for you. Well, there's probably, <laughs> probably more than that and more money more. They just kept their mouths shut and did the same thing to me. But, um, but that's okay. I, I don't mind. I, I find it kind of amusing and it makes it more satisfying when you actually do something if people didn't think you could do it before. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I, probably hardly anyone has ever done anything like this. So anyone with, with sort of common sense would have to assume that you'd probably fail, right? I mean, that's the yeah. smart money. The smart money says, hey, sounds like a good idea. I'm sure this guy is, is pretty motivated, thinks he can do it, but yeah, I don't see it happening. I mean, if, if you're going to put money on the table, I think 85 90 to 95% of people would put the money on the table and say he's going to fail. So in a way it's actually good. It's just showing you how hard it is to do. So if you do accomplish it, it actually means something. Well, and part of it is also because when people see me doing the challenge, they extrapolate, well, I know that MIT is a really hard school, which it is. And I know that it is very hard for bright people to do it in four years. So the fact that some guy who is just going to do this without all the resources an MIT student have is going to try to do it in one year seems extremely arrogant. But what I've been trying to explain is it's not that I'm super intelligent or even that I'm super motivated or disciplined, although, you know, you do need to have some motivation and discipline to do this kind of thing on your own. It's that when you change the assumptions for the education system so that you don't have to jump through all the bureaucratic hoops, you can kind of just focus on the learning part and ignore a lot of the other sort of details and things that sort of blockade your progress in an academic degree and admittedly and take on a few simplifications You can actually get a lot of the knowledge, or I would say, you know, 75% of the knowledge of an MIT degree without taking 75% of the time. You can do it in much less time because you've, it's the 80-20 rule, you've eliminated a lot of that waste. And people are so used to doing uh, education in the university format that they've just forgotten that that waste exists. They don't see it. They don't see that, wow, it would be much more efficient to, let's say, watch the lectures at one and a half times the speed where you can play back and rewind if you get stuck and watch them all, you know, in a shorter period of time rather than spreading them out and having to commute to class and doing those kind of things. So there's, there's so many ways you can speed up the process that just aren't available to a student in a, in a regular institution that really has been this major advantage. And so when people see the MIT in one year, 
they're thinking about, well, an actual MIT would be, student would be very hard pressed to complete in one year, but that's because he has to do it through MIT. Yeah, you know, a couple things I'd like to say about that. Uh, it says that you made some, you brought up a few interesting points. One is, uh, so my, 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 my in-laws were visiting a few days ago, and I was got, I got into some kind of conversation with my father-in-law about uh, some of these online courses. I think he was interested in some technical subject. And, you know, he's this really successful inventor, uh, engineer type. So he's a really bright guy. And I, and I showed him what you were doing, and he was like, well, that yeah, guy's probably got like a 200 IQ and, uh, <laughs> and everything. And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm sure he's a bright guy. But I think what's interesting is the, the assumption, which is that people are going to make that, okay, well, this guy must be a genius, and that's why he's doing it. Um, but you're trying to show us that, hey, you know, I'm not necessarily a genius. I'm just... I've just decided to do it. I mean, are, 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 you, are you afraid that, like, because if, you're, if, if part of your goal was to show that this is possible um, and, and you actually do achieve it, then the people who are the naysayers are then going to say, oh, well, you're the exception. You could do right. it because you're, you're special or you, you have a 200 IQ or something like that. Just like when people use examples of certain companies doing something like, well, they're special. 37 Signals is a special company. They can do it, but nobody else can. I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's, it's kind of funny because this, the same people who said it would have been impossible for me to do are now going to say, well, maybe just for you. So <laughs> I find that kind of an amusing uh, sort of retreat into the argument. And, and to be honest, with one person doing something, that doesn't prove anything. I, I, anecdote is not data, so I can't suggest that this is true for everyone just because it was true for me. But the thing is, is that it doesn't matter that there's some naysayers. The fact that some people will say to themselves, hey, you know, I'm fairly smart. Maybe I, maybe I won't do it in one year. Maybe I won't do the entire curriculum. But you know, maybe I'll learn this calculus course that I thought, no, there's no way I could do that online. I'd have to go to university for or maybe I can learn this biology course because it's something that really interests me. And, and so if there's some people out there who are getting that message and are willing to do that, then uh, I'm fine that there's some people who think that, that I must be a genius or I must <laughs> faker or I must be something. Because I'm not going to be able to please those people. They've already, they've already decided in their heads what's possible, so I'm not going to be able to change their mind on that. Well, hey, in the worst case, there's some people out there who think you're a genius, right? So oh, yeah. That's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, that's another, another interesting issue to bring up, I think, is the idea of, is it possible to scale this to a larger number of people? I mean, okay, we got one guy do it. It's kind of like the inductive proof kind of thing. You know, one, it's true for one. Can we do for N? If N could do N plus one kind of thing. Right. So, I mean, having gone through this on your own with no real external support other than the fact that you had access to resources and you had some motivation and advice from people through the web and email, that kind of thing. What are the pieces that you think would need to be in place to scale this up to say have a thousand people or 10,000 people do it? I mean, I'm not suggesting that every or even the majority or even a super majority of, of 18 to 22 year olds could do this, but Maybe you could get 10,000 bright, motivated people with limited resources to do this kind of thing. What, what, what would you, if, you, there was a, if, there was a, if there was a series of pieces that needed, a, a, set of, a set of pieces that needed to be in place to make that a high probability outcome for that 10,000, what would those be? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that it really boils down to two things. So first of all, there's what would it need, what would you need to do if the goal, if the objective 
is to get people to learn the ideas or to, to educate people. And I think that we're almost there right now. I, I think that MIT, a lot of their classes that they put online, they're not the best format for learning. Like I'm really sort of trying to hack them into something that can work. But the, uh, for example, the Stanford AI class that was done with very short YouTube videos and immediate feedback and, and structured assignments, that's much better for 99% of people than the typical MIT open coursework course. Of course, there are a lot fewer of the Stanford AI classes, but that's starting to change. They're starting to come out with more classes that have really interactive features that really promote learning in a way that uh, you know, the traditional, even the traditional college education doesn't do. So if the goal is learning, if the goal is how can we, for the people who want to learn, how can we get them the information so that they can learn it? I think we're almost there. I think that that's going to be in the next few years, we're going to be at a place where you can learn uh, at least for the sciences or the things that have sort of correct answers. You can get that kind of education uh, completely through the internet without having to go to school if, if you want to learn the ideas. Now, the bigger question is, because people are obviously talking, what's the ramifications to replacing or providing a substitute for higher education? And I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that what higher education offers is not just education. It offers credentials. It's this recognized institution that people have this kind of this large social norm intuition that it's related to, well, this is a good thing to have if you're going to get employed at a job. And, and so doing what I'm doing, where there isn't as much oversight, where I'm not, but someone theoretically could do what I'm doing and cheat their whole way through, or where I'm doing this, but it's, you know, I'm kind of, I'm having to make some little adjustments to the rules, which are fine for learning's sake, but may not be fine from a credentialist point of view. I think that's a bigger question, and that's a harder question to answer. I think that it really forces us to ask, well, what is the purpose of higher education? What is the point of going to college? And maybe that's something that's going to get over, like looked over again in the next 10 years or so. Because I think that a lot of people have just had this assumption that this package deal that comes with college where you get sort of advanced theoretical knowledge and sort of the grounding in many different subjects and you go, go to class and you get good grades and you go to a good university. It's this package, it's this system, it's this tradition that we've been used to. And so when people like me or people like Sebastian Thrun or other people who are working in this online education space start saying, hey, what happens when we only have let's say three of the five elements of a traditional college education or these two and not those two. Uh, it, it really begs the question, what, what's the purpose of higher education and, and how is that going to change in society? Because something is going to change. It's becoming more and more expensive and it's becoming uh, harder and harder to sort of justify the extreme cost of, of higher education. And at the same time, it's becoming more useful. Yeah. It's, uh, I have a couple of, thoughts on that that I you know I so I have three kids they're still really young at this point but I start thinking my you know how how am I going to send three kids to private school if that's where they want to go I mean that's going to cost what three quarters of a million million dollars or something in 15 years or something which is just outrageous right and another sensor you know and so I see the kind of thing that you're doing and, and, and what's going on with Udacity and Coursera, and it makes me think, well maybe it'd be possible to for there's some kind of a, a substitute sort of a synthetic uh, college education that might actually be better to evolve that has some kind of structure to it beyond you know what you're what you're actually doing, but you know then there's also the other argument that like you know college at least f I, I think for a lot of kids it's sort of like 
adulthood on training wheels. Like, you know, it's just kind of this intermediate step between adulthood and, 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 and living at home and being in high school. So you, you know, you're, you're living on your own, but sort of you're in a dorm. It's kind of an apartment with supervision or something of some kind. And then, you know, you're kind of doing your own thing, but you're kind of responsible. And if you kind of like aren't showing up to classes too much, you have advisors and things that are going to talk to you about, Hey, what's going on. So another side, it's like, well, what, you know, what to do about that? I mean, have you thought much about about it in terms of those, in terms of like the just purely the maturation process, the importance of college in that in, in that regards? Well, I think part of the problem is that we're using sort of the the status quo as this college, which is this system that sort of developed. Um, especially, it it has such a an important cultural significance over the last hundred years. Before before you know this era in time, lots of people weren't going to college or they weren't, that wasn't a normal activity to do and they were still functional adults or they became functional adults. So I'm skeptical of those arguments that it's that everything that is in college is necessary and it's not just ritualistic. It's not just part of the cultural norms that have developed over time. But I think one of the bigger questions, which is sort of whether online education can replace or be a useful substitute to uh, college education is is really what is the point of college? Why does it have, why does it attract a job premium? Is it because what you're learning is important or is it because, you know, you're signifying that, hey, I got selected in this great school. It doesn't really matter what I learned in it, but somebody already did the vetting process for me of, of choosing me as an exceptional candidate. And so it's these kind of questions that I think are really interesting. But I think that the current system is going to undergo changes. I'm just not sure exactly where they're going to go. So I'm hoping that at least for the educational point of view, from the point of people who want to learn, people who want to improve their skills so that they can actually do better and more interesting things with their lives, I think that that's there and that's here right now. So whether the education question and whether degrees and certificates and those kind of things is going to change, I can't say. But for the people who do want to learn, the people who want to learn big ideas and learn the things that you learn in college without necessarily spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and um, spending an extra four, five, six, seven, eight years of their life. And that's something that you can do on your own for free. And that, that's, that's something that's very important to me. Yeah, it reminds me of the famous uh, quote by Frank Zappa. It's like, if you want to learn, go to library. If you want to get laid, go to college. I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's so. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, it strikes me that in terms of credentialing, even if there was sort of minimal credentialing, um, some sort of like almost like a subject exam, you know, when you take like if you want to go to grad school in physics, you would take a GRE subject exam in physics. Right. So it's like an hour and a half or two hour exam of just co covering what would generally be presented or expected to have been learned in an undergraduate physics um, curriculum. And if, if you just took the whole thing and said, when I took the subject exam and did well on that, that would be as good or better than going to college because it just proved at that point in time, you, you know everything that you're supposed to know. Um, and if that's the case, it w I would think that anyone who could do this on their own would be a much more impressive candidate than someone who just went to school and got kind of pushed through with everybody else. I mean, I have a feeling like that, you know, one of my clients at Uber, which, which is these kind of growing startups, I mean, if they had somebody who said, oh, I self-taught myself, I went through and I self-taught, you know, in all these subjects at the MIT curriculum or Stanford curriculum, whatever, they would be very interested in talking to you, I would think. Yeah, I think that there's um, one of the people that I really admire because he's sort of crossing the chasm between what I'm doing, which is more kind of a 
proving a point in a theoretical sense, but maybe is not as practical for everyone to do as a replacement to college. And this is Jay Cross from the do-it-yourself degree. And the thing is, is that colleges already offer, um, if not the entire curriculum, they offer a substantial amount of what are called transfer credits, which you can do degree by examination. Really? You're doing what I'm doing where you do exams. Yes, it's a little known fact because colleges would much prefer you take all their classes and pay all the hefty tuition bills. But uh, he's working on a system right now so that you could get a real degree basically doing what I'm doing. Now, it wouldn't necessarily be an MIT or a Harvard or a Princeton degree, which sort of also goes in the question of, well, if, if you really need to have the top tier education, then maybe that's not for you. But there's lots of people who are spending tens of thousands of dollars going to schools where the brand name really doesn't matter much at all. And they're just going to find themselves with a lot of debt with maybe just marginally better job opportunities than someone who is the same intelligence and ability, but uh, didn't go to college. Yeah, you know, um, James Altucher, I don't know if you if you follow him at all, reading of his stuff, but he's one who's been, he's like Peter Thiel in the sense that he's taking this very contrarian view on higher education. And yeah. his perspective, he, I, I, mean, I don't know how serious he is about this, but he's like, uh, he, he's basically saying he's not going to send his daughters to school, his two daughters, that he's gonna, but he'll give them like $100,000 to start a business or something, which I think is kind of a cool idea. I'm not sure if, that, if every 18-year-old kid just wants to skip college and start a business. But I, I always think like, you know, if you could do a degree by examination, especially if you could do, it would be accredited by like a school like MIT. So you say like, right. I took the MIT accreditation courses and I passed with, you know, honors or high, high marks or whatever. In which case I'd say, I'd tell my son who's, you know, of the sort of, of the technical bent, I'd say, Hey, uh, if you do that, I'll give you $50,000 and you can just go spend a year traveling around in style around Europe or whatever, you know, and it would be like, you know, in some ways he'd, he'd learn more and have more fun. And it seemed like you could come up with alternatives if you presented things like that to kids. I think so. And I think that the ultimate thing that we're, we're coming against too is that uh, everybody, because college is such a multifaceted experience, it's not a single product. It's not just a single dimension that you're trying to achieve. It's so many different things that there's always someone who's going to have, uh, well, but this. So if what I'm doing is like, well, but you're not going to be actually at the college. You don't have your peers or you don't have access to professors or you don't have one thing or the other. And I think that if that's the standard by which we're trying to measure the replacements for university, the only thing that's going to be replacing for university is another university, which I don't think is ideal. And I think that there's so many opportunities for kind of educational entrepreneurs to rethink this system. And for some of those people, maybe that's doing what I'm doing because if they want to be an entrepreneur, if they want to own their own business, then how important is having a degree rather than just building something? And if just the skill that matters, then that's something you can do. Or for some people who are thinking, you know, I still want to get a, a job, but I don't necessarily, I wasn't going to go to MIT or Yale. I was going to go to a regular school. Then perhaps for those people, the do-it-yourself degree, the J. Cross approach is, is something that's more up their alley because they actually have the degree. They don't have to explain to potential employers why they weren't at but they still know all these things. They can just say, well, I learned it and this is where I learned it from. But I think there's a lot of opportunities. And I think what, what I'd like to see is this competition between these different educational innovations. And then eventually maybe a new system will pan out or maybe you'll have a myriad of systems. And I know in lots of other countries, there's more than one system for obtaining sort of educational knowledge. And in the US and Canada right now, it's mainly this sort of college education system. And maybe there's going to be 
two or three other variants that are going to suit different needs and different sort of expertise and different employment opportunities. You know, you brought up the issue of like, you know, having being able to access professors at a normal university. I mean, I mean, you you had an undergraduate degree. You said from was it University of Manitoba? Was that yes. right? Yes. In in business, when you right. were there, how often did you really access professors? I mean, how many times did you sit down and go to office hours and and really get a lot of feedback from them? Well, it depends. There were I did have a lot of professors that had a a profound impact on me when I was there. So I can't say that it was a wasted opportunity. I had some that were really coaches me and they taught me a lot of things that I wouldn't have learned in a normal school setting. Now, is that the truth for, for a lot of students? And I think for a lot of majors, maybe or maybe not. I think some majors and some schools, they have a much more hands-on program. So you're really not just learning the subject, you're learning kind of how to think from these people. But also there's classes where you're in classes of 150 plus people. And unless you're one of the hand-picked few that the professor selects, you have no relationship with any of your teachers. And so I think that's true for a lot of students. And, and honestly, having a relationship with professors is good, but we have to think about the opportunity cost here. Is that worth, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, four more years of your life? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, you figure like at, at the, at the price, some of these colleges are, are approaching. I mean, it's like, you're going to pay $5,000 a course or something like that, you know, or $3,000 You could probably get, yeah, you could probably get individual tutoring or mentoring from a lot of very important, successful people for a fraction of the cost that college is. So I don't think that just because that is an attribute of college necessarily justifies the expense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of the site's tutor spree, but you could go mm -hmm. and say, hey, I'm having a trouble, I'm having some difficulty with some of the differential equations and just go and find an expert in differential equations and meet them at the coffee shop once every week or two and sit down for an hour and a half and go over everything. And that would probably be way more time you would ever get with a professor on their office hours. Right. Right. And office hours is like one or two hours per week and you're like, you know, five kids going, you know, or, or whatever, if the professor even shows up. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and, and the and tutor spree is like, I mean, you know, the tutors are, I mean, it's a little pricey, 50, 75 bucks an hour, but, you know, you figure you save up all your toughest questions and uh, you find someone who's good, that would be worth, worth it in spades, I would think. Definitely. And if we're talking about concrete skills, so we're talking about a skill which has an objective answer, whether you're doing it right or wrong, as opposed to an art where you, you really, it's harder to sort of evaluate that yourself. If you can do have, have an objective evaluation, then I feel that what I've been doing with the MIT Challenge isn't really so much self-education because I'm, ha I'm doing work and then I'm having something tell me, this is what you're doing wrong, this is what you need to be doing better. So I'm getting feedback and guidance all the time. It just doesn't happen to be from a person face-to-face. -face. It happens to be from a recorded video lecture or from carefully handwritten solutions for particular problems. And those are all free. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I, it seems like computer science is particularly well suited for something like this, um, th you know, physics, things that are that things that have that solutions and especially computer science where it's like either the program works or it doesn't. Um, right. I mean, I know a lot of the stuff that in your curriculum, you know, when I was looking over it, it's, it's much more theoretical. So it's not like you're writing, you know, uh, you know, Python program for every homework assignment or something. But um, at least you're right. You, there, there's there's sort of a right and wrong and there's a feedback loop. So I want to ask you a little bit about um, your your process. I mean, so you're. You've got, you've completed, I think last I checked, you'd complete about 27 of the 33 courses since October. Is that right? 27. So there's, uh, well, five and a half left. One of them is six projects and I've done three of them. So, 
That's 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 amazing. They've gone that quickly. Now, I think I, I I watched one video and you said you initially were doing one course at a time, and so you would do it like in a week or two, and then yeah, I did you that only up. for about the first month. Um, part of that was just because I had uh, said, well, I'm doing this uh, challenge right now, and I didn't want to wait a month to get some results to show people while I'm actually sort of kind of doing this on time. So I did them sequentially like I would do the one class in a week and then I would write the exam so start the class on a Monday write the exam on a Friday and I did that for about four or five classes and then after I realized that this is probably not the best way to learn something because you're essentially packing it into a one-week period so then I started doing about uh, three three to five classes in parallel so sort of doing it over about a month month and a half so that's much closer to how people actually do college anyway they take yeah, it's like years, a yeah. semester but just in a quarter of the time a quarter of the time yeah because then you don't have all the distractions of college which is like study breaks and intramural sports and uh i don't know every other social activity going on um <laughs> you know i mean that's that's the thing i mean i when i look back at college i i i remember spending a lot more time doing this stuff in between actually the the learning you know and uh yeah. as opposed to the actual learning um so when you're when you're going through your day, I mean, how, how you know, take me through a, t- a typical day? Uh, how would you organize it between getting this stuff done? Because I think when people want to imagine this, they're thinking, "Well, how how am I actually going to get get stuff done? How am I going to make progress on a day to day basis?" Well, I think that first of all, my schedule has become lighter over time because I I kind of made the the progress in the curriculum more top heavy, so that I would be working really hard in the first few months when my motivation was at the highest and I was, you know, still had all that energy. And then later when I've been doing it for eight, nine months, I could slow down a bit and, and still be able to complete on time. So that's, that's a factor too. But actually the, the, the surprising thing is that it's, it's fairly simple. So the way I work through a course is that I, I break it into basically three phases. The first phase is covering the material. So if there are lecture videos, that would mean watching those and taking notes. If there's just a textbook or course notes, then that would mean reading that and taking notes. And then the second phase is doing the practice. So actually really training myself with the methods. And that's for a class that has really a lot of technical skill. That means, you know, doing practice problems, doing solutions. If it doesn't have as much technical skill, it's okay, let's kind of go through the concepts, figure out what I'm missing, what I didn't really get through in the first pass. And so that usually takes a fair bit of time too, because I have to really actually understand the ideas deeply. And then the final phase is either doing the projects which are involved in the class or doing the final exam. And so on a day when I'm doing the, uh, the first phase, and that will mean like today, for example, uh, I have the, the class machine, machine vision I'm working on and I have a 500 page textbook. And so I just wake up and I try to read about 200 pages in the day and taking notes and I just write down the equations when I find them and try to understand them. And so it's a fairly simple process. You just wake up around, around eight or so and you just get started. You work till five and, and you're done. <laughs> so do you break up the, the day? I mean, do you, I mean, do you work, do you like say read for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, take a break for 15 and then come back? I mean, what's your, I mean, I can't imagine you're sitting there for like three hours straight reading a textbook. In the beginning, in the beginning when I was still sort of building the habits of doing this and I didn't want to just slip into complete laziness, I would take breaks kind of on a regular interval. So I would usually, it would usually be watching videos and I would try to take breaks every 
you know, two hours or so for, for 15, 20 minutes. Now I don't usually do that. Now I usually take breaks when I feel I need to take a break. Like if I find my attention is wandering, um, I'll take a break, but that requires some discipline of sort of knowing, okay, this is a good time to take a break rather than I'm just being lazy. I actually just need to pay attention. So that took a little bit of time to find my rhythm, but now, now that's what I do. So if I need a break, then I take a break. I go for a walk. I go outside. I have some lunch if I need to. It's really not uh, a stressful endurance competition. It's just you just have to be dedicated to it. And you just wake up and you do some reading. And particularly if you're interested in the topic, which I have been for most of these courses, then I, I like doing it. I enjoy reading about these ideas. I think they're very interesting. And so that's maybe the, the fundamental thing I'd like to put across is that there's lots of ideas that are interesting that people would like to learn, but they've been so they had that curiosity so zapped out of them from the regular educational institutions that they just can't imagine reading a book about a topic and finding it interesting and, and not feeling like this, it's this grueling task that they have to overcome. So but you, you, I, got, I, got the, I get the impression that you're saying that you're reading through the entire material, watching the, all the videos, and then going back and doing work. So you don't say like, do the reading for chapter one, do the, do like the problem set for chapter one. And then move on, and, and you know, I, I mean, I would think you would do videos. That that might be then, a better approach. I found I found that this approach works better considering the time constraints I'm under. Because if you're just trying to learn the material, like you just want to know it, and you don't really care if it's the most efficient way possible, I think that doing it unit by unit is probably better. The reason I've chosen this approach is because eventually, with almost every class, I have to triage. There's things that I don't quite understand but I just don't have time to learn every facet of it. And so what I do is I cover the entire course material so that I'll know, okay, these are the themes that seem to be most important, or these are the things that I really don't understand the most. And so I invest my time in that. So that's why I do the coverage entirely first, so that I don't spend three days working on the first intro chapters, which turn out to be much easier than all the later chapters where I should have been really spending my time. So that's that's the reason I do that. But I think for the typical person, doing a unit by unit approach is probably more effective for learning, but it's slightly less efficient if you think, well, you know, I only have a week and a half to learn this subject and I don't want to spend, you know, eight days and realize, oh, I haven't even gotten into the hard stuff yet. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I although I I had uh, tried to let's see, it was about a year and a half ago when the open courseware two years ago maybe when open courseware was fairly new and I, I tried to watch the video series for electrical engineering and it was like their intro electrical engineering course or maybe I think it was their second year course or something and I got through like the fifth lecture because I wasn't doing the homework I was actually listening to it or watching the lectures while I was at the gym <laughs> on the uh, doing the cardio stuff and by about the fifth lecture I realized that I was lost because I hadn't been doing the homework problems I was like okay well. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I just like the concepts were, were just detaching because they just didn't have, I didn't have the foundation there. I mean, do you find that when you're reading that through all the stuff happen. in one burst? That can happen. That, that's a, that's a trade off. So I tend to try to moderate myself and see if, okay, if I'm going through this and I'm really, okay, I, I don't understand this and then I have to back up. But what I also have is my expectation, and this is different from a lot of people who have been doing online courseware is that I don't expect the, the real learning to come from watching the lecture videos. The real learning comes from doing practice problems. And you can do the practice problems after. And if I know sort of, if, I, if I'm following the course and I feel, ah, I sort of understand what's going on here, I understand what they're talking about, 
then doing the practice problems and, and a lot of other sort of techniques that I have, that's really where the learning fits in and that's really where it's secured. So that's, that's at least for me what I do is so I'll read through this machine vision class and I'll have a good idea. Okay, this is sort of roughly all the concepts that I need to understand and this is roughly the techniques that they're going to be using. But the meat of the course is going to be when I get practice problems and I'm going to have to do those for the entire class and go through them and figure out, okay, this is really how you have to understand idea X or Y. And so that's definitely the case that you can sometimes, if the class is really difficult, you can go through the entire thing and then find out that you didn't really understand any of the later ideas because it was too difficult. So that's that's a risk, definitely. Yeah, it's 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 actually one. Uh, it's similar to an idea I've I think brought up on the show before, which is the idea of resolution-based learning. Which is like I think it would be better if courses would say spend the first couple hours of the course or you know first few days going through all the big ideas from the start to beginning. Like instead of spending you know like when you learn calculus, they spend like the first month doing like limits. Right and definition of a derivative. You've never even heard. You don't even hear what an integral is until like after the, until the second quarter or something. Right. And it's like you know. I remember. I'm saying it's a blog post I'm working on, which is like how I taught myself my my younger brother calculus in like two. It was like two and a half hours. And I sat down with him and I said, "All right, look. Basically, it's derivatives and integrals." And bang, bang, bang. And I just went through and we did problems. And but I went through everything really quickly. And he he could see like he, this is all it is. I mean, yeah, there are there are there are edge cases and special cases which we're not going to dig into. Like we're not going to do trigonometric substitution integration by trigonometric substitutions or whatever. But those are just special cases. And it's unfortunate that like you're right. Like you have to go through the entire course at the sort of superficial level. Just die. Like what the hell is this even about? Hello? And uh, it's too bad that they don't do it that way because I think that would be more effective. Um, right. did, um, oh, go on, I'm sorry. I think that uh, the same the, the way I talk about it, and so this, and again, there's trade offs to this method, and I think it's particularly it's very difficult to do in the current education system because it's very much set to go through the classes sequentially. But I prefer kind of a recursive approach to learning where you do sort of the large. Uh, sort of cover all the material and then you kind of recursively deepen into those ideas until you really understand it. And the reason I find it useful for me is because then you get to focus on what's important and it's hard to know what's important if you haven't seen the entire course. So as I said, limits, for example, the limit de definitions in calculus, although they will test you on that, it, after you learn the basic rules, the chain rule and the rules of integration and stuff, then you very rarely come into limits. Limits are sort of a more something that's kind of for abstract problems. You're generally doing integrals. You're generally doing derivatives, particularly for later classes. So the fact that you really understand how a limit works isn't that useful when you're taking a later class, which just does integration. They don't really care that you know what a limit is. Right. Exactly. It's too bad. I, I think, uh, I think if, if, it, you know, if, if they could, you know, as your current course of learning, what I'm current resolution of learning is the exact same thing. I right. think that would be really effective if you could sort of change courses to work that way. Because even if a professor says, hey, I know what you need to know, so trust me. I'm going to lead you through this. You need to know this stuff first. And that that just the student's trust that the teacher is going to lead them through isn't enough. Your brain has to, like, put things in a certain context, I think, and, and, and are asking, like, well, why do I even care about this? What, even, what is this even about? And the problem right. is you don't even get that till later, and it's, 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 I think it's less it's, efficient. It's know? a big problem, and I think it's because we just expected that's how education should work. And really, whenever I'm trying to learn anything, I want to know why is this important at all? And if you don't know why it's important at all, then it's very difficult to learn it. And it's not because you can't learn the methods. 
but because you can't see how it fits into everything else. And there, they've done studies where they have videos where there's basketball players passing a basketball and you're supposed to watch and count the amount of passes between the white team and the black team or something like that. And nobody notices that there's a man in a gorilla suit moonwalking in the background. And that's <laughs> the man in the gorilla suit walking in the background would be important, but you've asked people to focus on these details that maybe aren't that important. And so when you're learning a class, so I did this in uh, differential equations is I, I, I had to learn how to do the Laplace transform. So sorry for the people who haven't done that much math here, but it's a very common technique that you have to know in electrical engineering. It's very important for, for understanding, you know, how do you send signals from one wireless receiver to another? It's very important to understand the Fourier and Laplace transforms. But when I was first told the idea and explained it, it was explained in a very technical mathematical sense. And I just didn't understand why you would need to know it for anything. And it didn't click. It didn't click at all. And then as soon as you realize sort of what it's for and you get kind of this visual intuition for it, which took me, unfortunately, it took me a few classes to get to that point. But once I got the idea, I was like, oh, it's so obvious. Why, like, why did I have trouble doing this at all? Because like, obviously the reason you're doing this is you're just doing it, looking at the frequencies. You're looking at the color of the spectrum, not the, the distribution in time. And when you think about it that way, that well, basically you're just asking what's the color of it. You're not looking at the, the uh, time distribution then it makes a lot more sense. It's really easy to understand. It's really easy to see why you need to know it. And, and so many classes, they just completely omit that because they're just, okay, just do what I say and trust me, it'll be important later. But if you don't know why it's important, then you're not looking for the gorilla, even though he's there. That's a great point. It's like, just trust me, you need to know this. I think is 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 this a huge mistake because it it sucks the fun out of it. Like if you don't care about why you're learning it, then you're just learning it to the test to get to get it an A on the test or just to be done with it so you can go on and do whatever else you want to do. I mean, it's because it just it's like well, you know, when there's no purpose, it's just then it's the purpose of gaming the system, you know, as yes, opposed to. I heard know. I heard a really discouraging thing. Someone told me that uh, the reason I I don't know whether this is true. This is more anecdotal, but. One of the reasons that they believe a lot of uh, men do better in math classes than women uh, in just sort of as a general truth, not, not in all cases, obviously, but was because uh, men were more happy just trying to learn to play by the rules. And the fact that they didn't teach them actually what this was for, or why this was useful or how to imagine it, um, men were more willing to put up with, well, as long as it gets an A, I'm just willing to struggle through this. I don't know whether that's the case, but I just think that that's a real sadness of the current system that we've just expected that math is going to be boring, pointless, and impractical. But if you really understand what it's for, it's this way of thinking about the world in all these complex and, and amazing ways. And if you can't see that picture, then it really is just dull calculation on a piece of paper that you're never going to need to use in, in your real life. And it's so sad that we're spending years and years educating people to do this and they don't even realize that this is what math is for. That math is for understanding these aspects of the world or, or science or, or any of these areas is like that. Yeah, you know, I'm because I, I remember in college, it's like I would be really excited about some math courses I had coming up. But as soon as it started to hit about third or fourth week and you had midterms coming up and and papers due, all of a sudden it was less about the learning. It's like, OK, I just got to get over this hump. Like I had to get this problem set in or this paper done. And, and you don't even care about learning for learning sake. It's just about being able to do well on the test. And then and then it just it sort of not only it sucks the fun of it, but you don't learn it so well. You're not learning it to learning it. You're to learn it. You're learning it to just get over the hump. Um 
And the, the other thing I was going to say, which is kind of similar to your Laplace La um, transformation yeah. uh, discussion is, you know, so uh, as I've discussed in the show, I've been, my, my, I've been teaching my seven-year-old son elect- electronic circuits. Right. And and I had I had uh, I had shown him a little bit of this little video uh, this little iPhone game for teaching algebra called Dragon Box, okay. and he actually learned how to do dr- algebraic manipulations at seven, without a problem. Right, and I was right. like, that's that's kind of cool. And I tried to get I was curious to say, well, I'm gonna take him with a piece of paper and see if I can teach him a little more about equations. And he was only like he wasn't really all that interested in it. He was just like whatever, Dad. <laughs> you know. But when we were doing the circuits, and I said, all right, Colby, you know, so well, this we have to have, um, you know, a current of of so many amps, and this is our voltage. I mean, what kind of what size resistor do we need? You know, Ohm's law. And so he's like, oh, and so he knows why you do an equation. Why do you need algebra? And it was like right. perfect example. Now I get it. But in, in algebra, when you learn algebra in eighth or ninth grade or whenever you learn it, they don't. They don't have good examples. If they do, they, they do give you examples. They're contrived. Mary has five apples. John needs seven. This is, I mean, it's like stupid. Right. The kids immediately look at it and go, "This is stupid. I'm never going to use this." And they're right. Almost nobody ever uses no, algebra. No. I find that uh, I'm a real big fan of. I forget the person who said this. I want to say Stephen Wolfram, but I may be wrong about that. And the idea was that we should not be teaching students math. We should be teaching them computer science because computer science is basically math. And it's actually, I would say, a lot of the math you use in computer science is more useful in day-to-day life because it's about thinking about problem solving, not about equations. It's not about you know calculus and those kind of things. It's about how do I solve this problem? How do I get an algorithm for doing this? And the reason we should teach computer science is because it gives... Uh, students a chance to make something. So you need you learn a problem a lot better if you say, hey, you know, make this into a video game or make this into uh, something useful, something that you're doing. And if the math is involved in building things, you learn it a lot better. I know that when I uh, first was exposed to computer science and computer programming, it was in the context of sort of writing scripts or making little video games. And you learn really complicated things because you have to. And it, I, I remember learning... Uh, to make any game that involves graphics, you have to learn actually fairly complicated math. So I, I had to learn vectors and 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 matrices and stuff like that in about the ninth grade because I just needed to know how to do some of the equations that you need to do for, for doing the computer graphics problems. And so I was just doing that on my own. But I think that if you were in a class and you could show, you know, this isn't just what this looks like. This is how you use it. And look at all these cool things you can do with it. That's what really will motivate people to learn. I don't know. I don't know whether that's going to change in the current educational system, but I do have hopes that things like online education and new forms of education uh, for students learning these things. I want to. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And uh, making making projects out of things, um, making things fun, making things games. Those are all really really useful. And I think the only reason people don't or schools don't do it is because it's not how things have been done, and also requires it takes more work. It takes more work to just to, to say, okay, I got to make a game out of this as opposed to just say, giving them homework problems, or we got to come up with some project that somehow encompasses all of these concepts and integrates into it. And, and it's a way more work for a teacher than it is to well, say, here, and, here's your problem. And not to mention the way that the current educational system is, is that we have an established curriculum. So teachers, even if they have some flexibility in how they teach something, the what they teach is very well defined. And the problem is that if, let's say, your math curriculum as a, as a you know, fifth grade teacher is you have to cover all these things, 
then really the only way you can cover all of them is to cover it in the boring way because that's the fastest way to just spit those ideas at the students. It doesn't really matter if they understand them at this deep imaginative level. Uh, all that matters is that they can duplicate it on a test and, and fun and those kind of things aren't part of the equation. Whereas if you taught them, let's say, okay, we're going to build a computer game and that's going to let you learn these concepts. Maybe we'll miss one or two, but you'll learn these ideas and you'll learn them so deeply you'll never forget them in your entire life. Uh, that's just not how the current institution is set up. So that's why it doesn't get done. Even if teachers had this incentive to do it, uh, they just can't do it. They'd get fired. <laughs> so I want to ask you a little bit about um, you know, some of the learning uh, techniques that you've sure. developed. And one of them, which I'm fascinated with, is something you term the Feynman technique. Could you right. uh, talk a little bit about that? Okay, so basically, and uh, I'm probably falsely attributing this to Feynman, I don't think that he actually uh, used this technique, but it was a technique that I was working on, and it was sort of inspired by kind of his methods for learning. And basically the idea is, and it sounds really simple when I explain it, so people say it and they'll be like, oh, that's really simple, I, I could have thought of that myself, but nobody does it, so that's why uh, maybe it's worth suggesting, is that if you want to understand an idea, what you should do is take a blank piece of paper out, and then you just write at the top of the paper, understanding X. So let's say you under, understand, we use the Laplace transform as an example, understanding the Laplace transform. And then you write sort of as a little bit of an essay, maybe draw some pictures and diagrams and stuff. You just write an explanation of the Laplace transform as if you were teaching it to someone else. So not as if just, just for yourself, but also just, I'm trying to explain this to somebody else. How would I explain it to somebody else? And this does two things. First of all, for the things that you do understand, it allows you to articulate them. And that's an important step in kind of solidifying that knowledge. If you can articulate, okay, this is what I already understand about this idea, then you can really lock that knowledge in. And the second thing is that when you don't understand something, it becomes apparent and it becomes apparent exactly what you don't understand. So if you're saying this is the equation and this is what this equation means and you're trying to explain why you know this equation does this and you get stuck then you know, oh, right, that's what I don't understand right now. And then you go back to the source material or a teacher or a tutor and you say, hey, can you explain to me? And then you list the exact question that this is what I don't understand. And so that's really the strength of the method is that it, A, allows you to solidify the knowledge you already have, and B, it allows you to pinpoint the knowledge that you lack, which is a real big problem for a lot of students is that they just say, I don't understand idea. I don't get it. But they're not specific enough to really pinpoint this is what I'm missing. Yeah, I think that's a yeah. You're right. It's a great way to identify your uh, your misunderstandings is when you try and explain it to someone. I mean, that's it, it's so many times when I'm like, oh, it's simple. You just uh, wait a minute. <laughs> what am I, what was I gonna say? You know, it's just it just it forces you to to to, to sort of expose your knowledge. And you know, I I I think I um I initially came across this, and and that, this might have been how I, I came across your blog. Ultimately, was uh, there was a post that uh, a, a blog article called "How to How to Read Math" or something, and the guy was talking about how you should you know take an equation and 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 write it out in 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 human in, in English, right. right? Just explain what is this equation really talking about, and 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 really trying to understand it, and then writing out some simple examples or like what you said, draw diagrams or make a geometric. Try to do a geometric description of it um, or depiction of it, and I, you know, unfortunately, I never did that when I was in school. I never thought to do that. 
And a lot of times you just look at equations, you're like, oh, I get it. But I didn't, I don't think I really got it. I sort of got it. You know, it looked, it looked understandable in some way. And, right. you know, what you're talking about is, 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 is great. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely the way to learn technical subjects is to try and do stuff with it. I mean, obviously it's like in, in math in, in math and physics and things like this. I mean, the other thing, of course, is that you can actually solve problems. So solving problems is part of it, but then maybe that's after you can explain it. And my question is, how did you come up with this? I mean, where did you read this or what made you decide to start doing this? Well, I think there's there's a lot of related learning techniques that uh, once you sort of learn one or two, it's easy to kind of improvise and make new ones. But the basic idea, I feel what learning is about and what a lot of people miss when they're in school because they don't really tell them this, is that learning is about deeply understanding these ideas. And by deeply understanding, it's that you just kind of get them, that they're this intuitive notion that, oh, of course, this is how this works. And if if you have done any sort of algebra and you understand sort of basic algebra, when you are expressed with a very basic algebra problem or a, like a multiplication problem, you're like, well, of course, this is the answer because this is how you do it. And this is this is why. Whereas when you get to the forefront of your knowledge, so that limited knowledge, it's very easy to just kind of accept things as being true without knowing why they're true. And so that kind of four-year-old curiosity where you keep asking, well, why? Well, why? Uh, that's very important to learning. And I think a lot of people skip it because maybe it's not absolutely necessary in the strictest sense to pass the test. But if you adopt this attitude, then it's preventative maintenance here. You're, you're really fixing those leaks in your understanding before there's a major break sometime later and the entire structure is so destroyed that there's no way that you can compensate for it. And so for me, when I'm doing a class, and I'll see an equation and there'll be something funny about the equation. I'll be like, well, well, why is that squared? Why would you square that? And I will spend 20 minutes trying to figure out why that that thing is squared when I think it shouldn't be squared. It should just be the regular number. But when I do get to that aha moment, because I realize, oh, okay, this is, this is where this is coming from. This is why it needs to be squared. Cause if you didn't square it, this would happen. Uh, that's very important. That's how you really deeply understand ideas. So that's the first part is deeply understanding. And that's kind of how this Feynman technique links into it. And the other thing is that learning is not a, a memorization process. And that's something I've really struggled to explain to a lot of students because a lot of students think that learning, they equate it with being able to regurgitate the answer on a test. And that's not what it is. It's being able to have this mental picture, this sort of connected representation of the idea. And so, as I said, with the Laplace transfer, one of the examples I did, that when I was first learning it, uh, I didn't get it. I didn't get why it was there. And I was able to use it. I was able to apply it on the test and put the transfer in. And it took me a long time and a lot of discomfort to actually get to the point where once I understood what it was, what it actually was saying, what this transform meant, uh, and it's a, it's a little bit complicated for me to explain in a short period of time on this, this interview series. But when I realized that, for example, if you have a a function and it's over time that what the Laplace transform is saying is this is the frequency. So if you think of sound, that's the pitch. If you think of light, that's the color. That's what the Laplace transform is telling you. That's what the Fourier transform is telling you. Then once you understand that, once you understand, oh, this is what it's for, and you get to see how it works, then you'll have it for the rest of your life. Then if you do forget maybe the, the specific derivation of the details, you can pick it up again really easily. And that's something why a lot of students who say, you know, I don't remember anything from what I learned in university. And my response is that's because you weren't learning it properly. <laughs> You're right. memorizing things. And that's why you forget everything because you never learned it the first time. I, I, I don't know. That sounds a little harsh, but a lot of students think that memorization is what the point of school is. 
And I haven't been in a single class where memorization was the point. <laughs> and that is legal classes too. I've taken several law classes and memorization also wasn't the point in those classes too. So you bring up a really good point, the idea of being able to remember what you've learned. So even if you don't memorize something, you know, sometimes stuff that you did understand can fall out of your brain after a certain amount of time if not, if you don't um, use it, I guess. It's just like a language. You know, if you speak yes. multiple languages but you don't speak in that one language for a year, all of a sudden you get really rusty. Um, do you do anything to try and make sure that the stuff that you learned three or six months ago you still understand? Because it would be sort of frustrating to go through this whole thing and then realize that the stuff you learned back in November, December, you barely remember. Yeah, so I have two feelings on that. My first feeling is that uh, relearning is a part of life. So this idea that you can kind of perpetually keep all the knowledge that you have intact and it will never degrade is just an impossible fantasy. You're going to forget things. Now, the key is that if you really deeply learned it the first time, meaning you didn't just memorize it, you actually understood the ideas, then it's generally much faster to relearn something than it is to learn it the first time. So I've done this even in this MIT challenge where I was doing one of the first classes I did was vector calculus. And vector calculus is calculus in multiple dimensions. So if you have to integrate not just over a line, but over a sphere, let's say, that's that's when you use vector calculus. And I understood the ideas and I remembered a lot of them, but I didn't have to use vector calculus in almost all the classes. And then later in a class, there was a class that involved antenna and sort of radio frequencies propagating in three-dimensional space. And guess what? It get, got back to vector calculus. And so I had to relearn a little bit of it. I had to re-go back and sort of understand those ideas again. But because I had understood it the first time, it was much faster than having to take that whole course again. It just took a little bit of a refresher. So that's the first thing I feel. So it's the same is true with languages. If you've learned a language before, uh, unless it's been an extremely long period of time, let's say like two, three decades, then you can go back and, and relearn it. And you're going to have to spend some work to sort of get back into it. But it's not going to be the same amount of work as the first time, because once you kind of reactivate those old connections, then you'll start, oh, right, this is how it is and this is how it works. So it's like riding a bicycle, I guess, a bit. The other thing is that I believe that the way the school system works is that we focus people on this kind of closed system of learning so that if you're in a calculus class, they will say, well, this is the syllabus and this is what you're supposed to learn for calculus. And everything outside of this, everything that's knowledge is not contained within this sphere it doesn't matter. So if you know vector calculus, but this isn't a vector calculus class, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get any extra. But life isn't like that. Uh, life is not an, a closed curriculum. It's an open curriculum where there's an infinite amount of things that you can learn and could be useful in your career or your job uh, that you just don't know, that you've never encountered before. So I feel that rather than trying to constantly take this defensive approach where you're protecting everything you know and everything you've learned, I just try to learn a lot of things. I learn as many things as I can. I want to learn aggressively. I want to have an offensive approach where I'm trying to learn as many new things as possible so that even if I forget some of the old things and I have to go back and relearn them, I've learned so many new things that those new things are useful to me now. And so that's something that's hard to get that mentality because we've been taught to think in the other way in the traditional education system. But if you're a programmer, for example, then just making sure that that little bit of Java that you know that you will never forget it uh, that's kind of a wasted effort. Maybe it's more useful to learn about new techniques and things that you've never never heard of before because they may be useful to you in your job or your career as a, a programmer. So that's a practical example. But just in life, there's so many opportunities to learn things that, you know, it, having this defensive approach where you're always trying to prevent forgetting everything is, I think, a wasted effort. 
Now, what about uh, space repetition? I, I think I, I saw you bring that up in a, in a video, which is something we've talked about on the show a number of times. And it's, it's, there's a program called Super Memo Plus, which, which sort of helps facilitate this, which is, you know, and just for our listeners, this is the reason I'm going through this, because I think you know what I'm talking about, which is the idea that your, your memory has a sort of exponential decay so that, uh, or, you know, so that you, um, or, or I don't know if it's an exponential, but it's a, it's a decay where, so you, if you, if you present a new idea, you might reinforce it like two days later, then maybe a week later, then maybe three weeks later, then like three months later, and then you kind of know it for good. Right. Um, and that's the idea anyway. And I think there's some scientific evidence to support it. Um, it's still uh, not completely, I don't think it's completely scientifically validated, but uh, I mean, I think it isn't, it doesn't run at odds with how, what neuroscientists uh, mm-hmm. understand about how the brain works. So have you integrated that at all in terms of keeping, um, keeping some of your, the past material fresh in your mind? Right. I think that if you're doing something like space repetition, my, so there are sort of artificial ways to do it. So I know uh, for languages, a lot of people really like Anki because it's a flashcard system, which employs space repetition technology where right when it thinks you're going to forget a word, that's when it asks you to jog your memory. And that's what promotes sort of this memory growth. So I think for some things that are more memorization based, so vocabulary for languages may be an example. Or uh, it could be an example if you have to memorize, you know, specific specific names or de- terminology or definitions for your, your schoolwork. Then that might be something that's very useful. For me, what I find is that uh, your environment itself can promote this sort of space repetition. So if you're learning something, if it's useful enough for you to remember, chances are you'll encounter it again. And so just continuing to sort of learn aggressively uh, in a in a field or in a subject you'll often go back to ideas that you learned before. So, and as an example, I, I've been using this a lot, but because it's familiar, the Laplace transform was an idea that I did in uh, differential equations. So I did that in the fall. It was one of the earlier classes I took. But it gets reintroduced in different ways, I think probably in about close to a dozen classes I've done. So you don't really need to force yourself to, okay, I have to remind myself to remember this in three months. Because the environment that you're learning in will force you to do it. So I try to learn aggressively because this learning aggressively will occasionally you'll get these links back to these old ideas that you had learned a long time ago. And now they become relevant again to this new thing that you're learning. And so this is how I try to promote the kind of space repetition system is by learning a lot of things that are kind of in the related space in the related area. And when you get to sort of a new idea, it'll link back to an idea that maybe you'd almost forgotten before, but oh, right, that's the idea that I was learning. So at least for technical subjects or at least for subjects which require a deep understanding as opposed to memorization, I try to let the environment do the space repetition for me. Right, right. And um, so here's another switching uh, gears a little bit is like, how are you supporting yourself while you're doing this? Because this seems like this is taking up, this is a full day at least, (laughs) a full day plus so how do you, how are you uh, paying the, how, how are you paying the bills? Are you living at home with your parents, or do you uh, no, you, went lo- you went the lottery or something before you started this? Yeah, I haven't lived at home for quite some time, but I uh, for for me, well, first of all, I just want to besides before I go into that, I want to state that because that's a common question. I guess, well, how how are you supporting yourself? And my, my response is, well, how does any university student support themselves? Like you're paying tuition, you're you're paying them to be there to attend the school. So I think that the fact that what I'm doing is maybe outside the fringes of what's normal or what how, what's a normal way of doing it, 
Uh, they don't realize that this I'm doing exactly what every other university student is doing. I'm deferring, you know, what I could be doing for work right now for making money to acquire knowledge. But on the other hand, so the way I am actually supporting myself, I'm not uh, I'm not living off of debt or or living in the streets or you know eating garbage and things like that. I, I am supporting myself, and what I have been supporting myself with is also how I supported myself through university. Is that I have a business, and that's related to sort of selling eBooks and courses, um, in part based on teaching students how to learn better, and also teaching people how to you know develop productive habits and and stay motivated and those kind of things. So you can get courses that I sell, which teach you the learning techniques that we've described in this podcast and also many others that I've sort of worked on over the last several years. Okay. So, and you're, uh, you're what, 23 now? Is that right? 23 years old? Yeah. Okay. So you graduated school, I imagine not too long ago, you know, at what point, when did you write the books? Um, and, and, and it, it, I mean, how long did it take for you? for you to write the ebooks and get them to make some kind of a, a significant revenue stream so that you could do what you're doing now because it's right. I mean, it does sound like there's a whole lot of time in there between graduating college and then having a, 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 um, a profitable business. Well, I actually, I started the website. So the blog, uh, I, this was a lot before I was making money off of it, but I started the website and blog where I was talking about some of these ideas. Um, it would have been uh, six and a half years ago. So I've been doing it for quite some time. I've been doing the the blog and those kind of things. Most of the products that I sell, I sort of did it about a year or two ago, which were related to learning. Um, and they were iterative development. So I would start by writing some free articles and I got lots of feedback and experimented with some methods. And I wrote a free ebook and I got some feedback and experiments and methods. And then I wrote the first paid ebook and then I wrote uh, a monthly course and then I put together a video course. So it's been really, I've been developing these for over five years, these sort of ideas and kind of slowly refining them and getting feedback from people who've been implementing them and in case studies and things like that. So it's been a long work in process. It's not been something that just happened overnight for sure. Yeah. Cause you have what, four books. I think you have what, learn more, study less, think outside the cubicle, how to change a habit and a little book of creativity, right? Is that the, the four? Yeah, those are the those are the books that I sell. The most of the revenue from the website comes from uh, this uh, learn more, study less, which is now a course, and it also is um, associated with a monthly program I run uh, called uh, Learning on Steroids, which have the same goal, which is that you're enrolled in this course, or in the case of the monthly subscription, it's a monthly program. And you're just given a lot of ideas and very specific implementation steps for how you can kind of adopt these learning strategies into your own in your own life. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like this is a pretty can be a pretty good business. I mean, we've had Amy Hoy on the show a couple times, and that's what she's done for the startup world. Um, she has she does courses and and and, uh, and uh, videos, and so does uh, Rob Walling, who does the Micropreneur Academy. And um, where did you get the inspiration or idea for? starting a business like this? I mean, because it seems like this stuff is, well, I may, maybe it's just new to me, but it seems like this people have been doing this, a lot of this until fairly recently and, and being able to figure out how to create a real business. It has it. been fairly recent. And so, uh, like, although I'm very young in person, I've been doing blogging and kind of this sort of online kind of activities for, for a lot longer than, than many of my peers who are much more successful than me now. And when I started, it was it was originally blogging was advertising driven. Okay. So that's how you made money as a blogger is that you put ads online. And that really didn't resonate with me very well because 
A, I don't really care for having ads on my site because a lot of the products weren't things that I would necessarily recommend uh, to other people and you don't have that much uh, control over them. And not to mention that I felt that it maybe wasn't as relevant for what I was doing. <laughs> and it's, it's very hard to make money from doing that. And then later, I, I, people started experimenting with doing ebooks. And so I was kind of in one of the earlier waves of doing ebooks and selling ebooks. And that's, a, that's also an, a good business model. But now ebooks have become more of a, a commodity item. There's something you buy from the Amazon Kindle for $3, which, although many people who don't really understand the economics of an online business realize that uh, they don't realize that that's actually extremely difficult to make a living from selling $3 ebooks. You have to be, uh, you know, writing 50 shades of gray in order to do that. Right. Uh, and so, so what we moved into as uh, bloggers like myself moved into, well, you know, if it's too hard to make a living selling these kind of just cheap and easy ebooks, then let's make really high value courses and let's make really high value products that are interactive that have a lot of features that go well beyond what you would get from a book at chapters. They they really give you very specific action plans. And so the courses I have, they have forums where people can write, they can contact me and email me for info and those kind of things. So it's a very interactive process. And that's that seems to be, at least for a lot of people, a much more stable and successful business strategy because it means if you have a thousand customers that are buying your products, well, then maybe you can live off of that. Or if you have 2,000 customers, you don't need to have a million, which is what the sort of traditional publishing model uh, recommends, is that unless you get a great advance, you need to have a million sales or so in order to make a decent living off of it. What about uh, videos and screencasts? Do you, are those part of your course courses? I do have videos. Uh, the, the video ones I have are not screencasts. Uh, and again, it's related because I'm not doing sort of computer technology related fields. If I was teaching people software development, I, I'd imagine I'd be doing screencasts. But they're basically just, yeah, they're lectures. Uh, I have some which are sort of long form kind of lecture style ones, which are about 35 minutes, where I'll go sort of a lengthy discussion on topic. And I have other ones which are very tightly edited couple minute productions, which I focus on a very narrow technique. So as an example, a free one I have is the Feynman technique, which uh, is the video that you mentioned earlier, where I have a very sort of tightly cut video of me discussing this technique that you can use for learning. And so I have a bunch of those as well. So what's your plan going forward? I mean, is it to, it was MIT challenge just like a one-off experiment for yourself that was, was something that would help um, I don't know, maybe build credibility or bring more awareness to right. your learn more, study less um, course and, and book, or is it uh, something that you're going to extend and, and, and do more with? I and mean, how does this all go? Well, what, what's, what's going forward? Yeah. Well, so there's, there's two elements that computer science has always really interested me. And because I work sort of online and although not as directly with technology as a startup entrepreneur would, uh, I am on the sort of in the forefront with technology. And so I feel that technology and technological trends and sort of just the evolving kind of web place is going to be an increasingly important part of my life. So understanding that at the basic level is something that I've always wanted to do. So that's, that's important for my long-term career, but more generally, I feel that my job right now as a blogger is to kind of show people kind of what you can do and show people sort of interesting things you can do and, and change how they think about things. And so I think the biggest goal of my MIT challenge, uh, aside from learning it for myself, was to show other people that, you know, this is something you can do, that you can actually learn 
in this way and, and learn faster and learn without going to university and, and rethink some of their assumptions. And based on the feedback that I've gotten, I've been successful at that. I've gotten a lot of people who have sort of, hey, you know, if he can do this, maybe I can do something similar. And, and that's really what the main goal was, because the truth is, is that my, I've been, even though it's taken a while, I've been able to build a, a healthy business that pays my income. And, you know, while having more money is better than having no money, uh, I don't need to have, you know, wealth and riches. What really matters to me is that you can reach out about this idea that I care about and hopefully influence some people to, you know, be more curious about the world learn things and not feel that they have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to do it. Do you think you'll do uh, another course like this? I mean, would you extend this to uh, computer science graduate school or do physics right. or uh, something else? I mean, you well, know, or is this at the, the end? The thing is, is that I, I've always been learning aggressively just period. I, I, I doing this, <laughs> my key thing is a very particular case because it has very specific constraints and I'm doing it publicly but uh, this isn't an end for me. I'm, I'm going to continue learning. I'm going to keep taking classes, maybe not under a, you know, four times the speed time constraint, but I'm going to keep taking classes. There's a lot of classes that I really wanted to learn, which I, I wasn't able to fit into this program, which hopefully I'll be able to fit in in future classes or, or I'll be able to do it in the future. So I'll be continuing to learn sort of the open courseware online education platform. There's a lot of subjects outside of computer science that I, I only got to dabble in. Uh, in this program that I like to study a lot more deeply. And there's also uh, a lot of things that aren't even inside of courses that are just through books and, and general understanding that I'd like to learn. What so, about course, Coursera and uh, Udacity and EDX? Are you yeah, going to... I've been doing the MIT, uh, the MIT Open Courseware almost exclusively for this challenge because it's consistent, because it makes makes just the effort of saying, okay, this I'm making a very specific bench part, which is MIT's actual computer science curriculum. I'm trying to conform to that as much as possible. But but once I'm done that, I, I plan to try out all the different systems and try out all the different classes and, and learn lots of different <laughs> subjects. This is sort of an ongoing effort for me. And and I think it's just it's I've been very fortunate that my passion, which is for learning new things, I get to explore in my business because I get to you know, get paid to teach people how to learn things. And I'd like to learn things. So I like to figuring that out myself. What, what would be some of the biggest uh, things that you've learned along the way of doing them? Are there things, or were there any major mistakes or misconceptions that you had that you had to sort out along the way? Uh, in the learning process, you're saying, or? or you I don't know with any of it. You know, I mean, it sounds like you come and you say, I'm going to learn this in a year, I'm going to do this, this curriculum. Um, what did you have wrong that you said, okay, if I did this again, this is what I would do differently. Mm -hmm. you, you know, what's an interesting, it's, it's interesting because everybody's been asking me, well, what surprised me most? What took me off guard? What, what had I not prepared for that, that actually changed? And the funniest thing was that it, uh, and I've done a lot of projects and, and for someone who's ever done kind of projects on their own, they can, they, you know, that it, it never goes according to plan. It's just how remarkably according to plan it went that I'm basically going to hit almost exactly the deadline and that most of the classes went how I thought they were going to go. Even some of the classes that I thought would be a real struggle or real difficulty, uh, I managed to find workarounds and, and make them work for me. So I think what surprised me most was just that it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. It wasn't as difficult to, to learn in this way that I thought it was going to be or even under these time constraints. And so... I think the fundamental thing that I kind of realize is that this way of thinking about learning that I've been using, uh, I feel this is sort of a proof of concept that this is sort of demonstrating that, yeah, it does work and it actually can work in this environment. 
and that the way a lot of other people have about learning that it's very memorization based that you know that, that it has to be done in this specific environment that you can't do it on your own I feel that I've in this challenge I've sort of shown that at least for some people it's that's not the case that it's not true what what turned out to be the hardest um the hardest parts of it I mean and, and also I guess part of that question is there or were there any points where you were, were just gonna bail we just say all right this is just too much well, uh, part of the advantage of doing this is that I get to set the, the constraints for the challenge. So originally, as I said, my original constraints were to just do final exams because in my mind, I had done programming before and I was thinking, well, if I'm doing programming projects that are taking teams of MIT students months to complete, there's no way I'm going to be able to speed that up enough to get it done in time. And uh, so the, one of the big surprises that I found that actually there isn't as much programming as I thought there was going to be. And of the programming that they have, they tend to be shorter assignments. So I have been able to do uh, at least most of the programming assignments. Uh, the things that have been really challenging that have, have really stretched me and have made it uh, and I guess really taught me a lot about sort of the learning process is that I think that um, for some of the classes or for some of the ideas, the material was a little bit scant in those areas. And so there was a lot of classes where I approached them where I was thinking, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this. So, for example, uh, 6004, I believe, which is called Computation Structures, I was really worried about taking this class because the only material they had for the class, there was no textbook, no lecture, um, lecture videos, was just uh, the PowerPoint slides that they used. And if you've ever looked at PowerPoint slides in <laughs> textbook, they're usually that informative. And I was really worried that this class would just be not doable, that I might have to bail or replace it with a different class. And the, the thing was is that the class had really well-supported assignments. So I basically taught myself how to do the class because I just did the assignments. They, I learned it and I followed the assignments and they had very good assignment instructions. And I was able to do it through that. And actually, it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. So I think the main thing that I've learned is that until you actually start doing it, until you start like actually trying to go through the class, you're not really sure what you're capable of. And just because you haven't done something before doesn't mean you can't do it. Well, okay. So I guess my final question is, you know, what would you have any uh, advice for someone who's thinking about doing, doing a project like this? Definitely. Well, I think the first thing is, is that there's no reason you can't start right now. Like there's tons of courses there. Just start watching the videos. If it's something that interests you, if there's something that you maybe you want to take it a little bit more seriously and make a challenge out of it like I did, then, then go right ahead. But just try out the courses. Try learning the courses. Try practicing with some of the assignments and learning some of the ideas. And you'll learn a lot about sort of what's required and, and what you're capable of. And I know some other people that have even adopted their own style of challenge and format. I highly recommend if you're interested in taking it seriously to, to start a blog about it because that was an important step for me in staying motivated was documenting my process. Like even if there weren't people directly looking over my shoulder, just feeling that I'm accountable to someone outside of myself at the end of the day, um, help keep me honest, help keep me motivated in, in learning these ideas. Well, uh, Scott, this has been really interesting. Uh, I really appreciate you spending as much time as you have um, with me here because this is a this is a great subject, and I think you you've set a, a really uh, impressive example for people because it's as far as I know, nobody else has done anything like this. So, um, and I think I think what you've done can be scaled. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think I think it can scale, and I think uh, the world is kind of figuring it out. I think 
you know, Udacity and Coursera and, uh, you know, OpenCourseWare kind of being one of the first, uh, first to do it. But I think those, those efforts are, are sort of setting the stage for sort of a, a rethinking of what might be possible. And while we may not be able to replace or we won't replace a traditional education anytime, you know, in the near future, but uh, it seems like we're going to have like a, an alternative for people who... My, uh, my who biggest work. hope is not that people see the challenge and, and think that I'm a genius or that I'm impressed or that I've got so much motivation, but they see the challenge and they say, hey, you know what, maybe I could do that too. And that maybe in 10 years from now, people doing things like this won't be unusual. They'll be commonplace. And I think that's something I'm, I'm really hoping for. Well, I think you should go on and do and, and do the the MIT PhD challenge. <laughs> I'm ready to follow <laughs> along with that. Next, that's the next follow up, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, thanks thanks again for coming on, Scott. It's been great. Oh. It's been great talking to you. Great talking to you guys too. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>